and welcome back to the ebook revolution podcast i'm jeff hughes thank you again dear listener for tuning into the podcast i hope you are enjoying it wherever you are because we've got a as they say in australia we've got a cracker show coming up because i've been away both metaphorically and figur- figuratively metaphorically i guess because the, the podcast as you probably realized if you're a semi-regular listener well you really have been a semi-regular listener because i've been a semi-regular host but i hope i've uh, fixed that up for you because as i said i've been in bali particularly the ubud writers and readers festival from the 24th of october through to the 28th and it was just an extraordinary event i went there specifically with a media pass to speak to writers about the art and craft of writing and hope that some of the insights they give me could help you and um, that's why I went really to help you write better become a writer and be inspired to create art the people I spoke to all artists but all incredibly humble and creative people and keen to uh share some of their secrets with you through the podcast so coming up over the next uh, couple of months i'll be releasing some discussions with people like gail jones who was releasing her new book noah glass kim scott who was talking about his new novel taboo kalupazati apply his uh, new book which is a uh, hilarious strongly strongly commended to um tiffany zhao uh, Under Your Wings is her new book, which has um, been released to critical acclaim. Cat Wheeler, she's written a great book, Retired and Rewired. And uh, another great expat, Wayne Furlong, ex-school teacher, has written a book called Buddha is a Punk Skater, and I'll be talking to him. Today, of course, though, I'll be talking to Julia Prendergast, who was at the festival talking about her book The Earth Does Not Get Fat which is a great title but we'll, we'll be talking with Julia in a moment if you haven't heard of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival it's been going for 15 years now it's grown into one of the most prominent platforms for sharing Indonesia's emerging and established authors artists and activists and it's also one of the world's leading literary and cultural events and it's just phenomenal this is happening in Southeast Asia, and kudos to uh, Janet Janet Deneef, founder and director, who uh, set this up 15 years ago, and it just grows each year. It's, it was my first trip, and awe-inspiring, really. Just hard to describe intellectual environment unless you actually go there, and I do recommend that you do go there next year for the 16th Ubud Writers and Readers Festival, which will be coming up in 2019 October as I said for me it was an extraordinary event I went over there specifically to interview successful writers for the podcast what I found was all of these people just were committed everybody I spoke to was just committed to the art and craft of words to create change and to tell stories and to um, affect change through storytelling and I just found that incredibly inspiring but enough about me. Uh, let's talk to Julia Prendergast. Julia lives in Melbourne with her circus of a family, 
Matthew, their six children, two dogs and two cats. Her short, short stories have been long-listed, short-listed and published. Her Lightship Anthology won the International Short Story Competition in the UK, the Ink Tears International Short Story Competition, the Glimmer Train International Short Story Competition in the United States, the awards just go on, the Review of Australian Fiction, the Australian Book Review, the Elizabeth Jolly Prize and the Josephine Ulrich Prize. And uh, as you'll hear in the interview, Julia's a, a bit of a short story fiend. Julia has a PhD in writing and literature. She's a lecturer in writing and literature at Swinburne University in Melbourne. And her theoretical work focuses the work of the unconscious in narrative composition. And she's had examples published by Text, New Writing, and the International Journal for the Practice and Theory of Creative Writing. And I think you'll enjoy the interview. We talked about her new book, The Earth Does Not Get Fat. I asked Julia where the inspiration came from. Gosh, um, so many places, I suppose. I wrote the first, the first chapter I wrote um, was called Sowing the Wind, and I originally wrote it as a script. And then, um, and then wrote it as, later as a short story. And in that, in the first chapter that I wrote, um, the, the protagonist Annie is uh, on the beach with her children, a toddler and, a, and an older son, and she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, her children are missing. So that's the, that's the first um, chapter that I, that I wrote. And um, I wrote from a memory, actually. I've, I've got a family, a number of children, and I, I was on the beach with them, a number of them, one day. And um, they can all swim really well. And the beach was only about as deep as your ankles, you know. But nevertheless, I, do, I was so exhausted and I just cleaned up the house and down there and took them to the beach for a last run. And I, and I, um, I, I dozed off on the beach and woke up and this uh, lady got really cross at me and said, you watch them, you know. And uh, so, I, so, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. I mean, mm. the, the inspiration from the book came from so many places because in the end it's a sort of a behind-closed-door closed um, story about family love in kind of dark and in, um, in, in brokenness, family love in brokenness, I suppose. So tragedy um, strikes that day on the beach and um, the story is about... The story begins 20 years later in the daughter's voice, who was the toddler at the beach, who's trying to unravel the story behind her mother's trauma. Why is her mother so broken? Her mother's dysfunctional. Mm. And, and so, yeah, so it becomes something else then. So to some extent it's, it's informed from family history? I mean, that was just a moment in time. It was just yeah. a tiny moment in time um, for writing of the first point. story. But I suppose in a broader sense, um, writing brokenness and writing um, love in, um, in, in dark, darker circumstances and kind of silver lining in broken families. I'm very interested in kind of gritty realist stories, behind closed door stories in Australia and, um, and how realist texts can talk about uh, those things. So, would, would you have any advice for writers who want to inform their work through family? I'm not really one... F I mean, although I teach writing and I give talks to students a lot about crafty, I'm, I'm not really one for... You know, I think people should write the stories that they, that they can't not write. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. in terms of some, uh, a couple of recent short stories, one in particular that I've just finished a draft of, um, someone read it for me and said, that's a crazy, brave story to write. And, and I thought, really? You know, it didn't feel brave. It felt necessary. Mm. 
And so I think that anyone who's writing should really begin with by telling stories that that, that, that they can't not tell, like mm. what that they're they're burning to um, write, even if they're not, even if the writing is difficult or the subject matter is difficult. Yeah. Good advice. You've of course had success with your short stories, and you've just said you're a short story addict. addict. <laughs> yeah. Do you think new writers need to tackle the short story form before they embark on the, the big novel that mm -hmm. they want to get out? That's a great question, and um, we were just discussing this, debating this at the Australian Short Story Festival, which was just before uh, this festival. I don't think they should. I think that they that they are unique forms. I think that the um, I think that the short form is a particularly apt vessel for capturing that kind of that incompleteness of human experience in the, in the missed moments. Um, my eldest son said to me, "I can't understand why you're so um, you know obsessed with short stories. Like we just come to know." people and then and then they're gone and I think that's so very true of everyday experience that even even intimate relationships sometimes and people that we think we know very well that people are uh, riddled with conundrum and contradiction and so we think we know mm. them and then people behave out of character so I think that the short form is a really apt vessel for capturing a moment in time and capturing those missed moments and and so I don't know that I don't like to think that of the short form as a practice or a lead up. I think they're distinct forms, is what I'm trying to say, a long yeah. way around. And my my novel, you know, three quarters of that work is published as short stories in their own right. So I've sort of um, deviated in a way in form. I tr I used. I think short stories and short story competitions are a really useful way of creating self-imposed deadlines. I still use them. I use yeah. writing competitions. Um, and then knowing that if something's shortlisted or longlisted somewhere, that it's got a voice and I have impetus to go back to it. So I, I used that when I was writing the novel. I polished chapters so that they stood alone, and I used that as sort of strategically to try to get work out while I was going. So that would be my advice that that's quite, yeah. quite was worked as a good strategy for me, but not in terms of training from the short story to to the novel. Mm. I don't I don't want to make that claim. I think having a deadline is a good thing. Mm. <laughs> Makes you work. <laughs> yes, it makes you work. Let's talk about writing generally. Mm. Do you remember a moment when you understood you needed to be a storyteller, a writer? Gosh, it's a great question. It's a big one. I've always loved, you know, even oral storytelling in terms of, you know, when we engage with people, I love to hear hear stories about people and I think about how the, the detail of someone's story adds up to make a composite picture of who of who someone is. Um, I've always written, you know, in my teens I always wrote, but I never wrote for an audience. I never wrote to give. I, might, I sometimes shared the work with people, but I never wrote in the sense of sending out to a publisher. Even throughout, because um, I studied writing, I did an arts degree and then honours master's PhD. So even then when I was studying writing and writing more, you know, producing much more material, I still I still didn't send my work out for a long time. So, Why was that? It's a good question, and I don't, I don't know. I didn't. I felt I, I was, I, I was definitely. I knew that I wanted to write, and I wanted to perfect the craft. Maybe I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I wasn't. I just didn't feel feel compelled. Maybe I didn't think the work was ready either. Maybe I didn't yeah. think I had something that was, you know, polished enough or a longer enough, a long enough piece. And I was writing. Into, I was practicing. You know, I was writing poetry, and I was writing um, a little bit of script and mope. But I was writing. You know, decent amount of poetry then, but not poetry that I would have sent out. I sometimes find poetry is a way into writing the fictional work. So I'm not sure why, except that I wasn't burning for publication then. I think I just wanted to get the writing right. Yeah. Yeah. 
a gradual yeah. realisation. Yes. This is your first novel, The Earth Does Not Get Fat. Mm. And it's a great title in the sense mm. of from an African... Zone. Yeah. It's an African proverb and it means however many people are buried in the earth, the earth is never satisfied. And um, it's, in, it's the title of one of the chapters in, one of, in a short story that was published. Um, it's also a line that comes out in one of the stories in a childhood voice and a, and a line that comes, comes later in the story from an adult voice. But it also relates thematically to the broader text, which is about loss and about grief and death and how that impacts across the generations. So it became, as the stories grew in, um, and the relationships between them grew, it's a fractured telling in multiple first person, um, that became more central. So, it, so I chose that for the title of the book rather, as well as a um, chapter title. Was it hard to shift gears from writing short stories? To um, when I was writing the, this book, novel. Um, I originally thought that I was writing uh, short stories that would exist independently and that, that it wouldn't become a larger um, work like this. But when I wrote various stories, particularly in the, in the, from the mother's perspective earlier on, and then um, the characters in those stories I felt just wouldn't rest, they wouldn't leave me alone. So I suppose that's what I mean when, um, when I um, said earlier about um, that, that my feeling is that we should write stories that we that we really feel compelled to write. So even though I thought I was going to leave that story aside and produce something new, I found that in toiling with the ideas I was going back to these characters. So they yeah. were still very much alive and that's how it became a, a longer work. So it wasn't so much about shifting gears as about accepting the shape of the work that that I that I obviously had a sense of without being really aware that I had a sense of it. Yeah. Mm. It always fascinates me how characters seem to just present themselves and Mm. situations yeah. almost unconsciously. Yeah, Kafka talks about this. He, um, he says, um, a person, I'm changing the pronouns, a person standing before two holes in the ground and um, in its metaphor for writing and, you know, waiting for apparitions to arise from the left-hand hole um, and instead they're constantly distracted by um, apparitions that arise from the right-hand hole, so much so that, that the left-hand hole is eventually closed over. So I'm loosely, very much loosely, um, paraphrasing Kafka there, so I might have got the holes mixed around. <laughs> but, but I think it's a great analogy for writing in the sense of these kind of ghostly apparitions that we create characters that, that take on a life of their own. Mm. And I always talk to, to um, students and other uh, my writing mates about that, about trusting your judgment, even... I mean, sorry, trusting the uncertainty of allowing the work to, to take you where, where it will. You know, that yeah. sometimes we can over-meddle and say, oh, that's not where it's meant to go when... Um, when sometimes I think unconsciously we can we can have a quite quite a good you know I think when you get to the end and you feel like a story, individual short story or a big work is finished, you realise you knew a lot more about how it was going to go than you than you gave yourself credit oh, yeah for knowing. Mm. I remember last year I interviewed a UK writer Joanna Penn mm. and she spoke about emergence, just mm. trusting emergence. Yeah. And exactly that. Yeah, having so we're speaking the same language absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a lecturer in writing at Swinburne. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think a writer can get by studying writing academically? Gosh, so many things. I mean, I think, um, first of all, because I studied writing myself, and so I think mm. um, that um, it's such a gift to be exposed to stories that you would not otherwise pick up. So to be exposed to um, novels and short stories and poetry in such a rich, you know, diverse array of writing. That was definitely um, a gift for me and I think for students too. And I love when students will read it for a short story, for example, and we discuss it and I'll unpack it and we talk about it in the lecture and then 
you know, I always encourage them to reread, and then students will come back and say, "I've read that again," and this. So I think, yeah, I think about thinking, thinking of yourself. You know, writing as a reader and reading as a writer is something I talk about yeah. all the time, and and it's been the focus of some of these discussions here. Yeah. And I think it's just crucial because when we read, we we we're learning all the time, but we're not sitting there thinking we're reading rules about writing. We're actually just immersed in a story world that teaches us things about our own subject matter and our own craft and. Mm -hmm. And, and um, what we trust at the level of the sentence and, you know, what kind of uh, fictional poetry we want to write. Like if, you know, I love realist fiction. I'm a bit of a diehard for the, for the dirty realism or realist yep. fiction. So, you know, um, reading, reading that and seeing how other authors do it well is just, yeah, inspiring. So I think, in the, you know, studying writing gives you exposure to such a vast array of material that I think it perhaps helps you make those decisions a bit more... Uh, consciously and maybe not consciously but acutely you know you're thinking about different forms and what sort of writing appeals to you and what you want to produce yourself yeah when when you were embarked on writing the earth does not get fat what was the best advice you received I think the best advice I received it wasn't so much when I embarked on it but later from the uh, two things from the Terry Ann White at UWA publishing University of Western Australia publishing who published this work and before she read the manuscript, she said, literary fiction is virtually impossible. And I was so candid and so sharp and so straight up. And I loved yeah. that. And I, and I agree with, with Terri-Anne. So I thought, well, then what, then what? So if it's virtually impossible, what am I going to do? Um, go home and crawl under a rock and cry about it or try and find a, a window into that kind of virtual impossibility? And... Um, Terri-Ann White, too, when she read the full manuscript, gave me some great advice about the middle of the novel, where, as I said, it's short stories, multiple first person, mostly in the daughter's voice at the beginning and the mother's at the end. And in the middle section, in the midsection, there were some other male voices. There's one that exists uh, still from, from the mother's past and present, but there were a lot of others. And, and Terri-Ann, among other people, had some questions around that. So the best advice I had was about just about, about going back to that midsection with a fresh mind in terms of the overall architecture mm. of the story. So she, it was great to have her fresh eyes on that. Following on from that, what advice would you give to young writers just starting I just think, you know, if it's something, if writing something that you feel compelled to, drawn to and compelled to do, then um, find ways, uh, find, find windows in it for your life. So from my point of view, when um, I had my children really young, so um, the tertiary system, like in terms of studying writing, was a way for me to say, um, a way to, ma to make sure that the writing didn't come last on the list, that it was a necessity, that I yeah. produced material and that I produced um, theoretical articles about, um, you know, research essays about writing. So while I'm not saying tertiary is the right way for everyone, I'm saying whatever, however you have to structure your life to find windows for writing that are not, that are not up for debate. That if you believe in it, then you find those windows, and really, you know, it's tricky as as a as a mother of young children, and those trying trying to think into things. My children aren't so young anymore, but at that time it was. So finding windows, whatever they are, where where writing is, where you where you back yourself when you say, I believe in this, and I'm going to have a crack at it. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. We'll wrap it up. Mm -hmm. I've just round out with one question I've asked mm -hmm. every writer because it mm -hmm. fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Do you have any rituals around writing? <laughs> oh gosh. We've all got them. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying give it, give it out. Um, uh, I write, um, I tend to, these days, I mean, I suppose, I don't know, I drink gallons of tea. <laughs> um, rituals, I, um, 
I'm a real, I am, I don't know that I'm a ritual person, but I'm definitely a routine person. Mm -hmm. I tend to try to write, um, create, do my creative work at the beginning of the day, whenever possible, if I yeah. haven't got like lectures straight up. But even then, I usually get up in the early, I get up, in, I'm not a very good sleeper. There's my, there's the truth. I'm not, sleeping's not my um, best yeah. thing. So I get up really early and if, if I know I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep, if even if it's like half three or something, I just get ready and go to work. It's dead quiet and it's like a ghost university. And I do creative work fresh up with, because um, I think that connect to between your sleeping mind and, and creative work, there's something kind of precious about that. So if I've got a yeah. ritual, it's, um, it's get, get, get there, you know, get there when your mind is the most fresh. Give it, give it, give the um, creative, give the creative work your best mind and then do the rest of your work. Great advice, Julia <laughs> Prendergast. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Me too, thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a lot of fun talking to Julia Prendergast about her new book, The Earth Does Not Get Fat, and some of her writing secrets. I particularly like uh, the idea of using short story writing competitions to supercharge your, your enthusiasm and um, what a great way to, to create a deadline to um, actually get a product out there and who knows maybe even win it as Julia has multiple times and supercharge your own writing career that was it for episode 23 of the ebook revolution podcast of course if you go over to the website www.ebookrevolutionpodcast.com episode 23 you can get all the show notes i've also put some links there to short story writing competitions if um, you want to take julia's advice up and i strongly recommend you do i hope you've enjoyed first of our special editions from the ubud writer and readers festival there's a whole bunch more coming up over the next couple of months so if you're listening to the podcast for the first time or even if you're a regular listener um, and you haven't yet go to the web, our website www.ebookrevolutionpodcast.com and just sign up for the mailing list and basically that will just ensure that you won't miss an episode and um, you'll also get some other useful information sent to you from time to time i'm jeff hughes host of the ebook revolution podcast over and out from Bali.